Our Old Testament lesson begins in Genesis chapter 18. We'll read verses 1 through 15, and then we will finish that lesson in chapter 21, reading verses 1 through 7. Listen carefully to God's word. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if, you have found, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, Three seas and fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Turning to chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised and Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks for your word. You have revealed yourself to us in it. And that today we ask that you would speak. We ask that you would send out your light and your truth and that they would lead us to you. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Legend has it that Ernest Hemingway, the famous American novelist, was once challenged by some of his peers to enter a contest amongst them. And the contest was to see who could write the best story only using six words. 
They put a wager on it, creating a pot, $10, which in the 1920s was a substantial amount of money. And you would have thought that in reading all the six-word stories of this rather erudite group that there would have been some significant protest about who actually won. But hands down, Hemingway was declared the winner. His six-word story read like this, for sale, baby shoes never worn. Six simple words, piercing, profound, tells a story of expectation and disappointment, of hope and grief. It's really tragic, but yet comprehensive narrates a world of heartache and emotion that we can all imagine. Six simple words. And it's a story that Abraham and Sarah could have told. They could have written that same story. They had received a promise from God. They received a promise from God that their descendants were going to be as many as the stars in the sky and the sands upon the seashore. But their bodies were old and they were aging. And they had known only barrenness and disappointment. And how was God going to work this out? And they knew bitterness after bitterness, disappointment after disappointment, grief after grief was what they tasted. And today we enter the story just there inside of all of that barrenness. We follow God's statement of promise from chapter 18 into chapter 21 where it's fulfilled. But what exactly is there for us in this? How does this ancient story about a birth of a son to a barren couple that happens way back then and there, what relevance does that have today for us here and now? And so this morning, ahead of our celebration of the Lord's table, we'll see three things here from this story of God's fulfillment of his word of promise. The first is we will discover the tenderness of God. Secondly, we'll see the weakness of our own flesh. And finally, we'll see the transformation that grace brings. So let's consider the first, the tenderness of God. We have visited chapter 18 prior when the visitors come to Abraham and meet with him outside of his tent. He prepares a meal for them. And they had two missions that they were on. The second mission is that they were on the way to Sodom to investigate the outcry that had come. But here today we read about the first mission where there is a conversation that takes place between these visitors, one of them being the Lord himself and his two angel assistants, and Abraham. But they ask him a question in verse 9. They ask him the question, where is Sarah, your wife? The question is curious. Why exactly was he inquiring about Sarah's whereabouts? It's important to consider that in the book of Genesis, we find on multiple occasions God asking the question of someone's whereabouts. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 9, God asked Adam and he asked Eve, where are you? knowing full well where they were. They were huddling themselves behind fig leaves and covering their shame. And then in chapter 4, he asked Cain a question. 
Where is your brother Abel? It's not that God is lacking knowledge or that he's lacking information in these circumstances. But when God asks a question, there's something profound happening where he's preparing the person who is asked the question. He's preparing them for a further disclosure and a further revelation. And this is what he does in asking Abraham, where's your wife Sarah? He answers, she's in the tent. And God is alerting Sarah to listen. And this is what's so important for us not to overlook just a mundane, mundane, simple detail in the story. That God has come to Abraham's tent, and he comes to Abraham's tent in order to speak to Sarah. In chapter 17, he reveals his plan to Abraham, but now he's coming for Sarah. And he comes in what is an incredibly tender moment. Because Sarah has, worked, has walked an incredibly hard path up to this point. If you remember back to chapter 16, Sarah collapses in her faith. She had received this great promise through her husband Abraham that she was to have a child, that she was to be the mother of nations, that Abraham would be the father of a multitude. And yet she only knew bitterness and grief as it didn't happen. Year after year, no descendants, she was barren. So in chapter 16, she devises a plan. She takes matters into her own hands. And she takes her servant, Hagar, gives, him to Abraham, gives her to Abraham, and asks that Abraham would raise up a descendant through Hagar. She lost hope in God's promise. She takes matters into her own hands. And yes, this was a sexual indiscretion, but even more so, this was an enormous collapse of faith, both on Abraham and Sarah's part, where they were choosing not to believe in God's promise because they could not see how he was going to work it out. And that context is the proper context for God's coming to the tent. It is in the midst of all of that failure, it is in the midst of all of that collapse of faith, that God comes for Sarah. And he doesn't come with a harsh word of criticism. He doesn't come with a harsh correction. But rather, he comes to reaffirm and to renew his word of promise to her. He's gently getting her attention. And he comes tenderly to her in all of her failure. He's pursuing Sarah, reassuring her of his purpose and of his promise. And friends, in the midst of our own lives, in all of our wavering and all of our own uncertainty, this is some of the best news that we can hear because we too struggle to wait upon God's fulfillment of promises. And we too can doubt whether he's going to make good on what he has said. That we've received the full climax of all of these promises and we've seen that what God holds out for us is a world to come that's made right and new, that's freed from evil and injustice and all the wrongs and our own sinful hearts will be healed. The dead will be raised and there will be no more tears. This is all that God has promised to you. And yet when we look at our world and we go to funerals and we see our own aging bodies and we experience our own sadness we too can ask the question, we can begin to doubt, we can begin to think there may be another way. 
that maybe Jesus isn't the horse to bet on, we can experience that same type of collapse that Sarah and Abraham tasted. But your God, he comes to you. He pursues. Just as he did with Sarah, he comes to the tent and reaffirms his promise. He says, no, this time next year, your wife will be pregnant. Barrenness will be over. And this is what your God does. As we gather week by week, as you come to his word day by day, as you approach him in prayer, his work and the work of his spirit is to affirm and reaffirm and renew all of his promises to you in Jesus, that they are yes and that they are amen, that they are true and he doesn't forsake them. And no matter how long he is in the fulfilling of them, that he doesn't forsake his good purpose. This is the tenderness of God to Sarah. It's the tenderness of God to you. Second, we see not only this tenderness, but we also see our own weakness, the weakness of our flesh. Sarah's response to this arrival of God outside the tent and then the renewal of the promise we find in verse 12, Sarah laughs. She laughed to herself. It was not audible. She laughs to herself and she thinks, after I am worn out, after I am beyond childbearing, and my Lord is old, shall I have children? Is that how this is going to work out? And you can understand where this comes from. Procreatively, Sarah was dead. Her womb was a tomb. It was not a place that was going to invite life. How in the world were they going to have a child? And so she laughs, and she laughs cynically. It's like a chuckling, a dismissing. Really? Is that how this is going to go? It was not a joyous laugh, but it was one that came forth from the deep disappointments of life. She had received this promise from God years ahead. She had heard this word again and again, and here God is reaffirming it again, and it feels like a deep and cruel joke. And so she laughs. She's being reminded that her fondest dreams, she's being reminded of those fond dreams, and yet they seem like they're never going to be answered. And Sarah shares the same frame that we do. Because you see, in all of her disappointment, and all of her suffering, she had accepted her barrenness as her normal. That was simply what life was. She couldn't imagine a different reality. She simply had to receive it. To say otherwise would open her up to disappointment, to pain, and to grief all over again. And so she hears God reaffirm her promise, and she chuckles and snorts at it. And she thinks to herself, that's not happening. Because she didn't once again want those hopes to rise, to think maybe, just maybe. And so she protects herself. She cynically scoffs and she dismisses it as nonsense. And friends, this is unbelief. And this is the real heart and character of unbelief. 
Oftentimes we think of unbelief as more of an intellectual category where someone simply can't get their mind around metaphysical, metaphysical things about God or evidence for his existence. But I suggest to you that here we have the more the heart and concern of unbelief. It's a lack of trust. It's the question, is God going to be good? It's being scared and uncertain. It's wanting to protect ourselves from pain and disappointment. Not understanding if God's going to fulfill a promise. And it's critical for us to see the link between Sarah's unbelief in God's promise, her cynical laughter, and her self-protection, because this is what's going on. And it's all very understandable. Anyone with a notion of any life experience and any disappointment and any grief can appreciate it. And this is the weakness that we carry around in our flesh, each and every one of us. Sarah does not stand apart from us. We don't always see how God is going to bring about his promise. We grow weary of hoping. And in that weariness of hoping, we retreat into a self-protection, a protection that keeps us from being disappointed again. It keeps us from experiencing that awful, raw feeling of disappointment. Several years ago in pastoring a church, planning a church in Arlington, Virginia, I was meeting with a young woman, and she was coming with a set of questions. She had experienced a number of relational disappointments, and she began describing herself to me, and I knew her well enough to know that the description was apt and true. She had some sharp edges and that oftentimes were very difficult to work around. You would describe her as prickly. And she began to describe how those edges were not allowing her to have good and meaningful relationships. And so the conversation developed and matured, and then we began talking about why those edges existed. And then in one of the most vulnerable and awful moments of conversation that I've ever been in, she said, the edges exist because I want to protect myself. If I can keep everyone out there, then I will never be disappointed again. Because she understood and knew that it takes that relational knowledge and intimacy and closeness. And then once that exists, then that's when disappointment can happen. And so if she could keep them out there, then she would never be disappointed or hurt again. She was conflicted, wanting relationship, but wanting to keep it away. And friends, we do the same thing with God. We fear that disappointment. We fear trusting his promise. We fear how long the waiting might be, and we're uncertain as to how it's all going to come together and whether it's really going to be good and whether all the things that have been lost and all the pains that we've suffered, whether he's going to fill that in and it's going to be truly, really a joyous thing. We fear that. And so we hold him at bay. We protect ourselves from him. And we do so... We do so and cynicism is kind of the fruit of it. It's the evidence of it. That's the weakness of our flesh. There's then this remarkable exchange that takes place. 
God then confronts the cynicism. You can imagine Sarah sitting in the tent. She's only been talking to herself. No one has heard it. She's having an internal conversation. God, knowing that she's overhearing this, that's why this whole conversation is taking place, he asks why Sarah laughed. She then enters the conversation and says, I didn't laugh. Now, this is just like the Colson household. <laughs> Several years ago, the prized possession in our refrigerator was Publix chocolate milk. When mom bought Publix chocolate milk, you would have thought, you know, the new heavens and new earth had, had happened. And it was the coveted prize. And one day we were out and one of our sons was remaining at home and he was studiously working on something and we all got home and one of the other siblings goes to get some chocolate milk and the carton is in the refrigerator. But there was like maybe an ounce left. This is how you create lactose intolerance, by the way. Drinking an entire carton of chocolate milk. And so then the confrontation ensues. Who drank the chocolate milk? I don't know. <laughs> well, who was home? Nobody. <laughs> who drank the chocolate milk? I don't know. I don't know how it happened. You know? I mean, no one was ever responsible for the disappearance of the chocolate milk. And this is Sarah sitting there. No, I didn't laugh. And guys, it's the shame of the moment. She doesn't know how to handle it, and so she deflects and she denies. And this is what can make it so difficult. But God persists. He wants to drive through it, and this is part of this tenderness because he could have rebuked Sarah at this point. He could have brought her into judgment, but he doesn't. He said, no, you did laugh. And then in chapter 21, he's still going to come and make good on all of his promise. He knew what she had done, he sees it, and he compassionately deals with it. And he leaves her in this place, and you have to think that it kind of opens the question that the one who reads her mind perhaps can also open her dead womb. Because the story moves on from there, and we don't hear about it again until chapter 21, where it's brought into fulfillment. But this is the weakness of flesh. And finally, as we move to chapter 21, we also see the transformation of grace. As he promised, as he said, God comes and visits Sarah. Abraham and Sarah are enabled miraculously from a dead womb, from an old man, from two people past childbearing to have a child. God had instructed Abraham, who had also laughed in chapter 17, to name this son Isaac. The name Isaac simply means he laughs. And Sarah, at the birth of her son, listen to what she says in verses 6 and 7. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And so Isaac's name richly takes on a double meaning. Meaning he laughs. It reminds Abraham and Sarah simultaneously of their unbelief and cynicism. And it also reminds them equally of God's overwhelming fulfillment of promise and his determination 
the joy and the thanksgiving of that moment, that God makes good on every word of promise. And friends, we have the down payment of that. We've seen that God takes the morning of the night and brings joy in the morning, that he brings an end to that grief. We've seen this in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we're awaiting that great day, as the African-American spiritual says, that great getting up morning. That's what we're awaiting. And friends, we have a God who speaks a word of yes to every promise, that it's sure and it's certain. And this is the transformation of grace that happens in Sarah and Abraham's life, is that they do here have to learn to get over themselves and to receive this rebuke from God knowing that they laughed at him, but yet knowing that God has filled their mouth with laughter and joy and thanksgiving that he's made good on all of his promise to them. And he did so in the places that were most tender and difficult and sensitive, those places where our broken and tired world had most impacted them. This is precisely where God promises to bring fulfillment and life and wholeness. It's in those places where we hurt the most, and can you trust him with that? Can you trust him that in the world to come, that every sadness that you've tasted is going to be made whole, that it's going to be made right? Or has your imagination been so deluded like Sarah, you can't even imagine a life beyond barrenness and pain? But we see here this transformation of grace in real time in Sarah's life where she's praising God, and Abraham is obedient to God and circumcises his son. Can you trust God in all the twists and the turns, the uncertainties and the unknowns, not knowing how he's going to work out that promise that everything is going to be worked together for your good? He's not saying that everything in your life will be good. You will have a very difficult Christian experience if you interpret that verse that way. But what he is promising is that he will work it all for your good. That he overcomes even the evil things and he turns them into a glorious harvest. And he's weaving all the threads and the tapestry. And ours is to trust him. And we believe we do so. Because the fulfillment was here in Isaac, but the greater fulfillment was in another, in Jesus. And in going down into death on our behalf, he cancels out our sins and rising We are given righteousness in him. United to God, we have been forever adopted into his family, that we are his. And so he comes to us tenderly, even in our struggle and our weakness. And he renews and affirms all of his promise, and he works with us in all of that weakness and all of that pain that we bear and all of our struggle to trust him. Because he ultimately seeks to transform us. That we know what it is to laugh with Sarah even despite the pain, even despite the suffering, even despite the heartache and the disappointment of life in a broken and fallen world, that we learn to laugh because we know that the victory is ours. The victory belongs to God, that the promises are sure and they're certain, and that we too can tell a six-word story, but not of disappointment and grief, but a six-word story of promise and purchase one that belongs to us because of Jesus. Hold fast to that story. Hold fast to that life. It's yours. 
He will do as he has said. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have brought us into your family. You've numbered us amongst the sheep of your fold. You've called us your own, and you've done so for no reason beyond your good pleasure and singling us out and setting us apart through your son, Jesus. And you are teaching us to trust you. And we recognize that we struggle. We recognize all of our weakness, our cynicism, our unbelief, our self-protection, all the ways that we want to keep back disappointment and grief and hardship. Forgive us, God. And we ask that you would transform us, that you would teach us what it is to trust you, to learn to have joy and thanksgiving even amidst the heartaches and disappointments, knowing that the sad things one day will be made untrue. Work among us. We ask God that you convince us that you are working everything together for good. We believe, God, but help our unbelief. We acknowledge all of our weakness. Come to us tenderly and reaffirm and renew all of your promises for us in Jesus. And this morning, we also take up our great privilege as sons and daughters to bring our requests to you. It's your son, Jesus, who intercedes on our behalf, mediating today, presenting these prayers to you, and so we come in confidence in his name. We pray for the advance of the gospel around the world, and we especially ask that you bless our mission partners, Josh and Anna Dickinson, working with Serge in Bundabugio, Uganda. We ask that you maintain the power and water supplies in Bundabugio so that Josh's water projects can continue to move ahead and they would not be hindered any longer than necessary. We ask that you would bless Josh as he preaches next week and as he speaks at the marriage conference in December. In all of these opportunities, we pray for fruitfulness, that the seed of your word would be planted and fruit 30, 40, and even 100-fold would emerge in this area of Africa. Watch over the Dickinson family. We pray for all in authority, especially remember our mayor, Lenny Curry. We remember our city council. We remember all of our local law enforcement. And we ask God that you would endow them with wisdom to promote justice, to restrain evil, to uphold integrity and truth in our city. Father, we do remember also those in our city who live without life's basic necessities, those who suffer on the margins, those who are oppressed and abused, those who are forgotten, the lonely, the poor. And we ask God that you provide for all of their daily needs and that they would give thanks to you, they would find help and resources and life in you. Draw near to them. We also pray for our own congregation, remembering those who grieve, those who suffer in body and mind. We remember our sister, Sue Forsyth. We pray for Elizabeth Garnett and her long struggle with cancer. We pray for Linda Gibbs and Gar Garganius, 
pray for Wayne Noble and Sandy Reynolds. We especially pray for our sister Janet Wedding as she grieves the death of her mother this week. Give her comfort. God, in all of our trials and all of our troubles, you are our consolation and hope. Grant us to grieve, but not to grieve without hope. For do not all things belong to us through your Son, Jesus. Yes, even life and death belong to us because we are united to him. And so bring us comfort and hope and encouragement amidst all of our afflictions. And Father, finally, we pray for the children of Christ church. We give thanks for each of them. They are known to you by name. You set them apart in the waters of baptism. And we long for the day of their rising into responsibility and taking up the full mantle of all that is theirs in Jesus as they walk with him in faith. And we long, God, for a generation that will be faithful to you and walk with you, and that these little ones that you've entrusted to our care, that they will mature and grow in that direction, growing in wisdom and stature and favor with you and all people, and so bless them. Thank you for all who minister to them in our congregation, for all of our teachers and all of our staff, all who give themselves sacrificially and selflessly to them. Give them energy and strength to continue to nurture and provide and direct them to Jesus. God, would each grow to delight in you and to remember their earliest and youngest years and maturing years in this place and to rejoice and not resent the church. Bless them. All these things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.